This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Out of the Blue podcast. My name is John Fleetham and I'm Professor of Medicine at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. Today I'm joined by Dr. Susanna Eng, who's the first author of the paper, The Effect of Weight Loss and CPAP on Obstructive Sleep Apnea and Metabolic Profile Stratified by Craniofacial Phenotype, a randomized clinical trial, which was recently published in the Blue Journal. I'm also joined by Dr. Brendan Yi, who co-wrote the associated editorial. Dr. Eng is an assistant professor of medicine at the Chinese University of Hong Kong, and Dr. Yi is a clinical professor of medicine at the University of Sydney. Uh, now, before we discuss the paper, I'd like to ask a few questions about the pathogenesis of obstructive sleep apnea. Brendan, what is the relationship between obesity and obstructive sleep apnea, and approximately what percentage of obstructive sleep apnea is attributable to being overweight or obese? Thank you, John. I think there's a strong relationship between obesity and obstructive sleep apnea. Uh, we know from studies in patients who have obesity, they probably have an increased deposition of fat in the upper airway and tongue that reduces the upper airway lumen, which predisposes to sleep apnea. We also know obesity may affect lung volumes and in turn may reduce upper airway diameter, again, increasing the risk of developing sleep apnea. And there are other mechanisms of how obesity may increase the risk of getting sleep apnea, such as uh, leptin resistance. In terms of the percentage, I would say maybe 60 to 70% of patients with sleep apnea are obese. And I think that's an important statistic as in that it's a, obviously an avenue that we should be addressing in our patients. Now, does weight loss consistently improve obstructive sleep apnea in all patients? No, that despite the fact there's a strong relationship between obesity and weight loss, the actual response to weight loss can be quite variable. And there lies one of the issues that although we do recommend weight loss in our obese patients with sleep apnea, the actual outcome of weight loss in terms of sleep apnea improvement can vary. And obviously that varies depending on the type of weight loss people have achieved and I guess the mechanism of their weight loss as well. Approximately what percentage of obstructive sleep apnea is attributable to craniofacial skeletal restriction? And how does this interact with obesity and causing yeah. obstructive sleep apnea? So I guess this is an exciting area of research. Uh, I guess it would be nice to have patients that you can phenotype in detail to see if there are predictors in terms of how weight loss can be more effective for these types of patients that have certain characteristics. Maybe up to a quarter of the AHI variance is due to craniofacial restriction. It's obviously an area that has, has been explored, but obviously there's more uh, work to be done. If patients do have craniofacial restriction and obesity, and they have a, a phenotype where their craniofacial restriction is quite significant, then potentially weight loss may be more effective in those patients than have a patient who has less craniofacial restriction. So maybe predictor in terms of effects of weight loss in terms of sleep apnea, maybe other outcomes as well. So it can be quite important, but I guess it's, it's work that hasn't been done until recently. Okay, let's move to the paper now. Susanna, what were the objectives of your clinical trial? 
as Brendan mentioned, craniofacial skeletal restriction is one of the key factors in the pathogenesis of sleep apnea. So while there are many studies investigating the cardiometabolic changes after CPAP or weight loss on patients with OSA, there was no study evaluating these outcomes based on craniofacial restriction. So in the planning of the study, we hypothesized that weight reduction in patients with more craniofacial restriction would result in better improvements in sleep apnea and metabolic profile than those with less craniofacial restriction or those treated with CPAP. So in this study, we aim to compare the effects of weight loss against CPAP alone on subclinical inflammation, which was reflected by the levels of uh, high sensitivity CRP and insulin sensitivity in Chinese patients with obesity and moderate to severe OSA, and then stratified according to the degree of craniofacial restriction. Who was your study population? How were they treated? And what were your primary outcomes? Our patients were recruited from respiratory clinics who presented to us with clinical suspicion of sleep disordered breathing. They were at the age of 18 to 70 years and body mass index of more than 25 kilogram per meter square. And they were symptomatic and diagnosed to have significant sleep apnea with respiratory event index, REI, of more than 15 events per hour through a level three home sleep study device. So after the diagnosis of sleep apnea, all of them were offered a 30-minute CPAP trial set at 4 centimeters H2O CPAP education program by the respiratory nurse and a careful mask fitting. And then they have a home overnight CPAP titration and at home with the auto-set auto-titrating device. So after all this, the patients who agreed CPAP therapy, they were randomized into Lifestyle Modification Program, LMP, or CPAP therapy at the ratio of two to one. We put two portions of patients in the LMP group as we would further divide them according to the craniofacial restriction. So for the patients in the LMP group, so they participated in a dietitian-led program for six months with weekly dietary consultation in the first four months and then monthly in the following two months. So the general initial goal in this LMP program was a caloric reduction of 10 to 20% in daily energy intake from the patient's usual diet. So that is equivalent to a deficit of more than 200 calories per day. So the target was subsequently adjusted based on the changes in the body weight uh, with the target BMI towards 23. So a diet plan is aimed at achieving an acceptable macronutrient distribution ranges and emphasis on fruits and vegetables and low fat and low calorific products. And also moreover, patients were encouraged to see an exercise instructor at least once during the program and perform 30 minutes aerobic exercise two to three times a day. On the other hand, patients who were randomized into the CPAP group were interviewed by the physician on duty and invited to start the nocturnal auto CPAP treatment at home for six months. Our primary outcome was the change in HSCRP levels among three groups. The CPAP group, the LMP group with a more craniofacial restriction, and the LMP group with a less craniofacial restriction at six months. And how did you assess and stratify the craniofacial phenotype? 
most of our knowledge of craniofacial morphology in OSA has predominantly been derived from studies using lateral cephalometry, which are standardized lateral radiographs of the head and neck. However, it is limited by the two-dimensional nature of the image produced. These precludes more detailed volumetric analysis. Therefore, in this study, we adopted the three-dimensional imaging modalities through CT scan, as it provides more detailed cross-sectional images and allows three-dimensional volumetric reconstructions analysis. In this study, we located the following mandibular landmarks, including the tips of the mandibular condyle, the points of the angle of the lower jaw, and the medium plane of the chin. So through these measurements, we calculated the space that is the mesolomandibular volume, MMB, which is housed within these landmarks. So the advantage of using MMB is that it reflects the pure bony enclosure without interaction with the soft tissue. So patients were then stratified according to the median value of the MMB into a small MMB group, which represents a more craniofacial restricted type and large MMB, which was less craniofacially restricted. And what were the primary findings of your study? In this study, we randomized 194 subjects, mean age at 50 years, BMI 30 kilogram per meter square into CPAP group and LMP group. There are several key findings of this study. First of all, there were significant correlations between the insulin sensitivity and respiratory events index and oxygen desaturation index. And following six months of interventions, patients in LMP group achieved 6.2% reduction in body weight and 25.4% reduction in REI with significant change in the dietary intake. And all patients in the LMP group had significant reduction in HSCRP level compared to baseline, while there was no significant change in the CPAP group. So as you know, all patients at baseline had HSCRP level of more than one milligram per liter, which reflected intermediate to high cardiovascular risk. After intervention for six months, we found more than 20% of the patients in the LMP group achieved a low HSCRP level that was lower than one milligram per liter, which was significantly doing much better than the CPAP group. For glucose regulation, again, insulin sensitivity improved significantly in the LMP group, while there was no significant change in the CPAP group. And there were three times more patients in the LMP group having normal glucose regulations than the CPAP group. However, in terms of the craniofacial restrictions, when comparing between two groups, more craniofacial restriction versus the less craniofacial restriction, there was no significant difference in the change in HSCRP, insulin sensitivity, or the respiratory event index after the lifestyle modification program. And uh, we also did the multivariate analysis, and that shows only weight loss was associated with the percentage change of the REI, while the mesolomandibular volume did not show any significant association. Brendan, uh, in your opinion, what were the major strengths of this study? I think as Susanna has alluded to, I think the novelty of looking at craniofacial structure as a phenotype using CT scan is obviously a big plus for the study. I think it's a pretty large study in terms of uh, randomized control studies for weight loss and sleep apnea, and a very well, I guess, characterized or phenotype Chinese Hong Kong predominantly population. I think of the strengths. I think the other thing about the study, when you read for it, the retention was very impressive. 
I think you only had about five out of 190 patients that actually dropped out of the study. So I think that that reports to the trial and the conduct of the trial as well. So I think, and, and I think the other novel factor was uh, the lead-in in terms of people who are randomized to CPAP, they had to have you know, good compliance initially or use of CPAP before they were included in the study, I guess, just to enhance the, the compliance of, of CPAP use in the study, even though the actual CPAP use in the study was probably similar to other large randomized control studies for CPAP. So I think they're the main strengths of the study that I can see. Now, Susanna, the lifestyle modification that you did in this study was, it was pretty intense in terms of time and financial commitment. Do you think it, such a program is feasible outside a clinical trial? And do you have any information about the patients whether they are able to sustain the weight loss after the trial? Yeah, I agree that the program is quite intense. This program is divided into two parts. The first part is the intensive phase, which consists of weekly dietitian visits in the first four months. And the second part is the maintenance phase, which consists of monthly dietary consultation for two months. So we expect to see most of the weight loss happen after the first four months of intensive phase. From our previous studies published a few years ago, using this program on obese and sleep apnea patients for 12 months, the beneficial effects of the first four months was able to sustain for another eight months as part of the maintenance phase. So that is very encouraging as we are happy to see that patients continue to benefit from the intervention even after the study finished. Um, however, we need further exploration about the cost effectiveness of this program when bringing this as an essential treatment for patients with sleep apnea. And all of your patients were Chinese, so so more likely to have craniofacial restriction than non-Asian patients. Uh, was the study sufficiently powered to examine the difference between patients with more and less craniofacial restriction? Yes, all our patients with Chinese who are likely craniofacially more restricted compared to non-Asian patients, it is possible that our stratification procedure may not be able to demonstrate the differential effects of weight reduction. And moreover, we know that there are ethnic differences in craniofacial predictors of upper airway collapsibility. Uh, for example, there is more evidence showing that Chinese exhibit more craniofacial bony restriction with differently shaped mandible and maxilla, or Japanese Brazilians are more related to the cranial base angle, uh, while among white patients, sleep apnea may be more related to the mandibular volume ratio. So in our sample size calculation, it was based on weight loss intervention alone versus CPAP alone, without taking the MMV sizes into consideration. While there is no population data on the size of MMV in various ethnicities, and the comparisons of the outcomes between more and less craniofacial restrictions could be underpowered. Uh, we believe that future studies are required to explore the optimal MMV cutoff or threshold or other craniofacial metrics which are more important determinants in the benefits of weight reduction. And then finally, your objective CPAP compliance was relatively low. Do you think this played a role in why weight reduction was more effective than CPAP? and improving subclinical inflammation and insulin sensitivity. Although the objective CPAP usage was four hours per night during the study period, there was significant improvements in sleepiness with ESS dropped from 10.7 to 7.6. Previous study evaluating the effects of CPAP versus weight loss or versus combination therapy also showed no significant improvements in subclinical inflammation 
and insulin sensitivity. Even all subjects in CPAP group used CPAP for at least four hours per night on at least 70% of the total number of nights. So it is doubtful that improving CPAP compliance may improve outcomes. Nevertheless, the objective CPAP compliance in our study is actually close to the real-world situation that although CPAP therapy is a gold standard, there is a wide variance in adherence. So these issues definitely compromises the effectiveness of the treatment. Brendan, I recommend weight loss to all my overweight patients with obstructed sleep apnea with very limited success. Do you have any advice on how weight loss programs can be more effective and whether there's a particular subgroup of patients with obstructed sleep apnea we should focus on? I think as you know, practicing sleep physicians and, and seeing sleep apnea patients on a day-to-day -day basis, I think we have to be, I guess we have to be armed up with uh, knowledge about management of obesity. I think you need buy-in from obesity services. I think we tend to run, if possible, multidisciplinary clinics with dietitians and exercise physiologists and maybe bariatric surgeons and endocrinologists involved. So I think if you have a service that has access to those other teams, I think it can make it much easier. I guess our training in obesity is probably quite limited when we do pulmonary medicine and sleep medicine. I think that may need to be changed. I think we need to be aware of, you know, some of the newer medications out there. I mean, I think some of the GLP-1 medications have been shown, you know, up to one or two years of quite sustained weight loss. And I think these have been quite major blockbusters for the diabetic and endocrinologists in the future. And I think we probably need to have studies looking at these medications in sleep apnea as well. Don't go past simple things like very low calorie diets. I think we've shown in previous studies that you can sustain weight loss for 12 months when you introduce very low calorie diets for two to three months. Again, with people who can follow these patients like exercise physiologists and nutritionists. So I think you've got to have buy-in and I think you've got to have a, a team that can help you sustain weight loss in these patients. Which patients do we target? I guess motivated patients. I think I think you can say to patients that tackling the underlying obesity not only will improve sleep apnea, but as Suzanne's alluded to, it addresses the underlying cardiometabolic risks they have as well. So I think it's getting buy-in with team members, buy-in with the obesity services, and also buy-in with patients. So yeah, I think it can be successful, but it probably needs a bit of planning. To do it ourselves, though, can be a bit trickier. Thank you. That's very helpful. Now, Susanna, do you have any final comments in, in terms of your study points we haven't raised? Yeah, I think... Now we are in the directions of doing more personalized approach to treatment selection in sleep apnea. We believe that the design of our study to incorporate craniofacial phenotype is a major strength of our work, an important milestone in this field of research. So while there is increasing evidence for detailed physiological phenotyping and tailoring therapy, so there is a major knowledge gap in craniofacial phenotyping. So our novel approach to investigate the effect weight loss in OSA will lead to other studies in this theme and to include more such similar phenotyping. Brendan, any comments? I, I just want to congratulate the authors on doing this study. I think it's hard doing these large randomized control studies with weight loss, and I think they've done a, a sterling job. And I think hopefully there'll be more studies like this coming out and hopefully um, piecing together more information for us. So well done. Yeah, totally agree. I'd like to thank both Dr. Zeng and Yi very much for this interesting discussion. To the listener, to read the article discussed in this podcast, please visit the podcast homepage at www.atsjournals.org. 
To listen to more episodes of Out of the Blue, visit our page on iTunes or Google Play. Uh, you can also subscribe to stay updated whenever new episodes are available. Thank you all for listening.